Welcome to the Vertical Software Podcast. I'm your host, Sudan Siva, the head of corporate development of Vogue Software Group, where we buy and hold vertical market software companies across the world. In this podcast, we'll introduce you to owners and operators who run a vertical software business, talk about their story, how they view the market, and the trends that they see. Stay tuned for our next guest on the Vertical Software Podcast. Hey everyone, super excited for today's guest. We have Rolf Danglemeyer from BlueSnap and BlueSnap is one of the fastest growing companies in the payment space and the US overall. Rolf has previously served as the president of ACI Worldwide and is on the board for BlueSnap at Middletree, the Electronics Transaction Association in Stonehill College. To me, he's a savant in the financial services and particularly payment space, and, and he's been at it for 30, 40 years, and, you know, very, very excited to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Ralph. Thanks for having me. Right. Well, with that introduction, I don't know if I can, I think I've been called a savant in anything. For sure. Awesome. So w- why don't we start off with, you know, a, a bit, you know, a bit more about your story. I think, you know, you've essentially pioneered parts of the payment space and, and, you know, through ACI and later on BlueSnap, you've been able to see how the entire space has evolved over the past several years. So curious to get, you know, the story from your perspective. It's a long one, but I'll try to put in a couple quick buckets. I mean, I came out of school here in the Boston area and went to work at Bank of Boston, which is part of Bank of America in an operations training program. And I got to learn a lot about payments and the back office and operationally how it worked. Of course, back then there was no FinTech. And uh, I got lucky enough to to run into an entrepreneur who was uh, working on solving a problem that the bank had and trying to build what we call now a data warehouse. And now I think we call it a BI. And he asked me to join his company. Uh, his company's called Bankware, and it got bought by SunGuard, and it became one of the predominant uh, products that they use for compliance and regulatory reporting for banks. And I realized that even though what I thought I was doing was kind of boring at the time, that the opportunity to look at data, look at things differently within a changing environment um, created opportunity. And so uh, the, the next thing we saw was moving to a company called PH, which had uh, a really cool uh, treasury platform that got sold to banks. And uh, we made a really early call right in the very beginning of the internet in 1996 to help banks bring their treasury offering online way before anyone else. They were two years before the market and everybody thought it was unsecure and it wasn't safe. And now I'd be shocked if any business does bank, doesn't do their banking online to one of the portals that we built that was also became acquired by ACI. And we got to ACI. And one of the things I think that was kind of innovative was really focusing a lot of attention on these uh, hubs back then. This is, we're talking now almost 20 years ago where we're building, there was so many different disparate systems. How do you pull them together in the hubs? And that was kind of a, a big, a big success story for a lot of the banks and, and customers we work with. When I came to, to BlueSnap about uh, seven or eight years ago now, it, it, I don't think anyone really understood what a thing, what a PayFAC was or a PSP, but we decided that we wanted to build a global PSP 
that focus on the mid-market, which is where we used to focus when we dealt with ASI with treasury clients. And we thought it would really help if we focused on businesses that had invoices and global. And so we were one of the first registered, um, we call payment provider, Payfax in the country when the Visa MasterCard came with the rules in 2014. So um, I think it's been great to sort of look back at the things that we've done and figure out where are sort of these gaps in the market and how do you sort of build a product that would be able to help really innovate financial transactions. That's a little bit of an answer to your story and the transitions from um, ACI to Blue Snap. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely helpful. I'm curious, you, you mentioned this process around identifying the gaps and essentially building around it. Tell me more about that. How does your decision making you know, between yourself and the team go through, especially you know, when the industry is going through so much change? It's so funny because these ideas or these opportunities don't just pop into your head like a cartoon character, right? They sort of evolve um, and you're so kindly always doing, I think of it as being on a boat, you're always tacking around. So there's never like this aha moment where you go, oh, here, here's the idea. Um, but there's a kernel of it that works that way. And so every time there's a shift in the market, whether it's new technology, like the internet, whether it's something we do with compliance, whether it's something to do with the, the pandemic that we're going through, there's opportunity because one, at least what happens in America and generally the world is innovation changes things. And so the question is, where can you fit in or where can you strategize to work? A lot of these ideas though, I gotta say, I, I can't say they're original, they're ours. They came from our clients. So I, I remember being in a meeting with a bank one time and they said, oh, we have this problem with Y2K, how are we gonna convert 50,000 customers? And we're thinking, why would you convert that? Why don't you put them online so you don't have to convert them? There was a customer saying, here's my problem. We're saying, how do you solve it? You know, And then next thing you know, you build the product around it. And the same thing going on a, a lot with this e-commerce or online transactions, right? There's a lot of people that are handling, dealing with startups and a lot of people dealing with big banks, but the middle market doesn't have the sophistication that some of the, the bigger clients have and they need something more simple so how do you build a robust product when you stitch things together? And it's just constantly talking to the clients and saying, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? So I'd say innovation is more of a process than just light bulb idea. And so, and you just got to keep working at it and slowly I call tacking because you're not changing your route dramatically as you go through it. In some cases you might have to, depending on what happens in the world, but most times it's, it's small pivots uh, that actually end up, directing you to a course to, to look for these gaps. For sure. And, and, you know, as you sit on the board for a number of organizations, in addition to your role at BlueSnap, yeah. I'm curious to know, how do you plant those seeds? How do you, you know, as potentially someone new coming into an organization like a BlueSnap that has already, you know, operated for quite some years, how do you plant those seeds of innovation and, and kind of make those small shifts, small tweaks, if you will, that lead to bigger changes few years down the line. As a leader, what's your mindset? Yeah, so I think when you're on these these different boards, you know, you, you're, you're really, um, yes, you have fiduciary responsibilities as a board member, but I think of it as you're there to help, right? And, and you're there to maybe connect the dots a little bit and say, I know you're rolling this, this product out to this group of customers. You know, have you thought of distributing it through the banks in this way? Or have you thought of doing something maybe in another way and just sort of try to help them open their 
open up ideas that may or may not make sense um, because a lot of people either build products in a certain way or they go to market in a certain way. So I think what you're always trying to do is just think of communication, new go-to-market opportunities, new product opportunities, maybe add-ons to products they haven't thought of, maybe new partnerships. So a lot of it is, is the whole reason I think one of the reasons the board exists is to take the collective experience of a group of people and give advice to a management team who may not be seeing the different connections because you, you know when you're building a, a product every day or running technology data set every day you're worried about you know opening the doors and closing <laughs> and closing the doors you know i mean that's what you're already doing so sometimes it's always hard to say to look at things in a new way so i think that's that's the best thing you can do as a board member is just try to offer advice and help out and support them as they're going through any kind of changes that happen whether it's um, an association, whether it's you know a, a, a private organization or whether it's a uh, it's a nonprofit, all of those connect the dots in the same way. For sure. Any crossover learnings from the organizations that you sit on, particularly looking at kind of the relationship between Mineral Tree and Blue Snap, just given that it's in and around the same space, it looks like. Yeah. So it it does look like that, but they're very different, right? So so Blue Snap actually help they help merchants get or businesses get paid right so we help you get paid through through banking transfers or cards right and mineral tree actually helps the business pay bills so the very so one's kind of money coming in one's coming money coming out so uh there's there's synergies because you're selling to the same client um on that but the actual payments functionality is very very different However, being said that, the structure is a lot of the same, right? You got to have a strategy, you got to have a good team, you got to have a direction, you got to go to market. So all those are very, very synergistic. Um, as a matter of fact, in, 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 in those companies, we, we now have when I, we have the same owners. So the same private equity group is involved with Blue Snap as Mineral Tree called Great Hill Partners. That wasn't the case when I joined the board of Mineral Tree. So, so I think it's back to this whole kind of collaborative effort and trying to see, well, geez, look what the marketing team is doing here. Here's some marketing ideas that worked at Blue Snap. Do these ideas also work at Middle Tree? And can you share some of those ideas? Absolutely. Especially since the businesses really aren't competitive, they're collaborative in one level as you, as you look at a merchant. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Switching gears a bit, I want to talk a bit more about the payment industry overall, obviously. You know, it, it's gone from an area that, you know, felt and, and you know, appeared to be very technical and, and, you know, highly complicated, very hard for businesses and entrepreneurs to understand. And now it's become probably one of the hottest areas within FinTech, which in and of itself is a fairly new area uh, that people have started to look into. Where do you see BlueSnap within the broader payments and FinTech market? What kind of role do you see the company playing now and, and perhaps in the future? We're really out to help businesses and merchants accept payments around the world, not just through cards, but also through bank transfers. You know, we're talking about 125 trillion transactions going on right now in B2B and 25 trillion going on in B2C. Um, and even if you look at Amazon, they're sort of uh, literally a pimple on an elephant when you look at the whole world. So this is a massive market with lots of players and I think lots of niches. And so we want to try to service that mid-market. I think we're we're sliding a little more towards B2B right now because uh, right now with the coronavirus, 
People don't want to go in and touch things. They don't want to send out invoices. And it's a great opportunity to digitize invoices and help people through that. We've done lots of partnerships and work with lots of the clients there. Um, but I think we can really become one of the players that helps that mid-market integrate products together um, so they can have in one place things like multiple global banks, Apple Pay, Google Pay, invoice creation, fraud uh, services if they need it, um, compliance, reporting, taxes, all those things are important in a transaction. So it's not just make the payment and go. The merchant or the business needs to look at all of the whole ecosystem of the payment. And if you can integrate those together and provide them with what I call a Salesforce type of solution on the payment side where it's all integrated in and it snaps well together, <clears throat> not to use a pun on our name, but that's sort of the idea, right? It's in the cloud, it snaps together well in the ecosystem and the merchant doesn't have to do a lot of system integration, a lot of heavy lifting. That's what these businesses really, really want. And uh, it's just gotta be easy, but it's gotta be complete. And I think that those two things go together, right? And, and we miss that sometimes when we're talking about payments to the, to the merchants, how it's gotta be complete, not just easy. Right, love the idea or analogy to at Salesforce, I think that's that that's a great comparable when, when you think about the ecosystem that the company is building. Tell me more about the mid-market because I see that term get thrown around a lot. A lot of people have different definitions for what they call mid-market. I'm sure it gets debated internally as well. Yeah. Who do you describe as kind of your core customer? So you're right. The mid-market could be anywhere from a $5 million business to a billion dollar business, depending on where you're, you know, who you're talking to, what you define. Yeah. Um, and also it's different B2B versus B2C, right? So you're right. Um, that is a pretty broad spectrum. And then all these different verticals, we sit, throw that around, but reality, what we're really talking about is a, a client's use case. And that's what you're getting at, right? So we think of the ideal client use case is someone that's selling to consumers and selling to businesses. There's tons of that going on. And when you sell to a business, really what it means is you need an invoice, you need a PO, those kind of things, right? Um, where a consumer may not need those. They get a receipt, which is almost the same thing, but a consumer is generally buying off a website or a phone call. And a lot of times the business is, is actually buying off an invoice, right? So there's a slight difference. And what we saw is most of these businesses end up with multiple providers, one to service their consumers, their website, one to service their invoice. And then when they go global, they just repeat that. So, our, so, our, so a lot of our clients have five or six payment providers. So we can walk in and say, hey, you don't need to have five or six of these. You don't need to separate your business from your consumer. You can have one platform that is able to generate the same shopping experience you have today to consumers buying online. And it gives you the same experience for the businesses buying through a PO or an invoice. So that's the that's sort of the key differentiator. And then that becomes our ideal client because they don't need to go to four or five places to get um, what they need to service their customers, right? And so um, that's the that's our goal. Got it. And and I think more recently we, we've started to see payments becoming an embedded function within a lot of B2B businesses today. So what we see a lot of companies that you know, traditionally wouldn't get into payments, wouldn't look into even you know, lending out money, starting to get into that space. You know, what do you think that means for BlueSnap and, and yeah. the rest of the industry? 
And, and you know, obviously with COVID in particular, that that's kind of accelerated a, a lot faster. You're, you're so right. So uh, I think the industry is calling this now integrated payments. And again, it's like middle market, what's integrated payments mean? So let's start there. So integrated payments is to me, that's a piece of software or a platform that's being used to drive um, a services business, a manufacturing business, an education business, a law firm business, a winery, whatever it may be. And what they've done now is they've, they've taken that one step further and they've integrated payments into the platform so that the business doesn't have to go out and get their own payments provider. So what's happened in COVID, all of these businesses that we thought would happen over five years started happening over five months. So healthcare, law firms, restaurants, daycares, schools and education, all these things that used to be separate are now being embedded into these technology platforms in a cloud or SaaS model and being provided so that that shopper or business can easily pay its bills now through what generally is being called the portal, right? And that's really becoming integrated payments. And so we're very fortunate that we have a pretty strong integrated payments product. And so we started to knock back a lot of these integrated payment providers, which some people call ISVs, offer payments to their customers. And so there's two models, either they sell the customer and then we board them, or um, they do the integration and then we sell the customers. And it, it, it's sort of that simple on one level, but again, it's kind of like saying there's only two flavors of ice cream in the world, vanilla and chocolate, right? I mean, there's 32 different flavors of integrated payments, but those are the most simplest basic ones that, that it seems like everybody's doing now. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, when, when you think about, you know, potential competition or platforms perhaps building their own payment capability, do you see Bloom Snap kind of integrating with that or, or kind of being apart from that? Like, how does that dynamic play? Yeah, no, we integrate and partner right with them. We right. can provide all the services they need to white label their product or, again, have us be the front person for them. So we give them a, a basically, it's a menu they can pick from on how far or deep they want to go integration and how far or deep they want to do on the sales side. So, um, and that's why there's there's lots of flavors of ice cream when you end up putting these integrated things together. Yeah. Fast forward, hopefully six months, maybe a year from now, and, and let's you know talk about what a post-COVID world looks like. You know, obviously there's you know perhaps a, a decent amount of shift away from physical commerce. What do you think that new world looks like? I think you're starting to see some of it now. It's just not as, uh, maybe not widespread. I mean, let's pick an industry. Um, maybe we were chatting earlier about restaurants. I mean, I think it's neat that you can go to a restaurant, click on a QR code, get your menu, get your bill, add your tip and leave and never have to give the waiter your card. Tons of fraud happens when you hand your card to somebody else. And now there's a chance of getting sick. So long overdue, I think that's a, that's a great innovation. Um, I think buying online, picking up in the store, uh, being in a store and, uh, you know, I was recently at a time in store and I wanted buying a shirt and shorts, but the shorts they didn't have were my size. So now they have another store, I can buy my shirt, pay for my shorts, get shipped to me. That's awesomely, that, that, how convenient is that? 
we've modeled out 13 different models of sort of what we call omni-commerce, where there's all kinds of stories where you buy online, return in the store, you buy in the store, you get something shipped online, something from another store, you return a piece of item in the store, you bought online. I mean, if you think about the different scenarios that people got to work through, and some of those scenarios work in, in stores and some don't. So I think it's really kind of getting to, and I know this sounds like a like far-fetched, but you know, anywhere, anytime, you know, anything, which really is almost like Amazon. So all these guys are just trying to race to that type of model. Um, so I think that this COVID environment has really put people in that mindset where we've got to innovate our shopper and buying experience. And I think. You know, I, I'll tell you a quick story, and I feel bad for Neiman Marcus, but I'm, I know people that try to buy stuff online there, and it's like impossible. And when COVID hits, the fact that they go into bankruptcy because they can't get drive online sales doesn't surprise me one bit. It was probably the worst checkout experience you could have. <clears throat> now, again, their in-store experience is fabulous, but you've got to be able to operate in multiple channels. Um, you can't be dependent on one channel anymore. This is what's happened. The, the, all the retailers and all the B2Bs are really going down and we're seeing innovation. You know, not to quote uh, Charles Darwin, but it's not the fastest, it's not the strongest, it's the most innovative that survived. And that's what you're going to see in the next 18 months. So um, when this COVID is over, you know, the innovation, the innovative, innovative folks will be standing. Innovation for shoppers is having a really good experience online. Uh, just like Amazon did. Yeah, for sure. I think Amazon's definitely set the benchmark in, in a lot of ways when it comes to what does that ideal experience looks like. And, and you know, companies that are able to match, if not beat that, are, are going to be the ones that kind of stand out, you know, coming out of this for sure. You know, a, a bit more curious around how, how do you see reach like be going beyond retail but like how do you see other industries particularly banks now um kind of shifting their model because they obviously you know in a lot of ways have an antiquated model where you know you have the branch experience you know a lot of them have an online experience to an extent and, and this might be pulling from some of the experience from aci but you know I'm, I'm a bit curious to get your thoughts around how does that entire model shift given that, you know, essentially a lot of the functions that they used to do can be done on the phone or online? I, th I think the, the banks are in a good spot and they're also in a risky spot at the same time, depending on how you look at it, right? I mean, obviously, no matter what you do, you got to move your money through a bank. And so more of that's happening online, the branch network kind of expensive, but they get to maybe shut down some of their branches. They still get to do their lending deposits. I think when it comes to the e-commerce side of this, um, you know, a lot of the technology the banks have is a little light, it's a little thin, and they don't right. quite have the same technology that I think people like us and say Stripe and Adding have. So when these guys, you know, boast of all their new wins and clients and millions of clients uh, that that say ourselves and Stripe and Adding have, um, and PayPal for, for that matter, they where they come from. Right, where these where these clients come from? They came from the banks, so so they're that's where the siphoning is coming from. And so, um, and I, on some cases, it's going to be very hard for the banks to build this technology. Uh, some right. some got to catch up, some don't. And even if they do build the technology, how is a is a Canadian bank or uh, an American bank or a German bank going to service a global client? 
if that if they don't have a network? How are they going to service someone in Australia or Mexico or South Africa? That's what we hear from our merchants all the time. So I really think that these banks are going to have to do like they, they always did in the past. And I know ACI was really good at this is they've got to partner with technology companies. Um, and I think it was like these things go in ebb and flow. I think it was kind of like really cool a partner then it wasn't cool. I was cool again. I wasn't cool. So, um, and I think the, the banks that are trying to partner and work with the, the technology companies are going to probably going to do better um, than the ones that, that don't. AR automation and AP automation, you know, banks don't have a lot right now for that. So that's 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 where they need to really beef it up. And and look, it took them 20 years or so to get the treasury side to work, and it works well now. Right? They've got right. robust treasury products. They've got great branch technology. They've got great call center technology, great lending technology. You know, the, the e-commerce stuff is still pretty new. It's still pretty new. I mean, you know, it really started running in the last five years, right? So over the next 15 years, I'm sure they'll catch up and come along. But right now, I like to say it's kind of a long putt for them um, in the short term. Yeah, for sure. I guess switching gears a bit, let's talk about kind of the global nuance that you know perhaps you might be seeing. So there's obviously regulatory environments that are constantly changing. Privacy is obviously becoming a bigger and bigger deal now. Uh, how do you see that impacting the way you know you see payment solutions and compliance in particular becoming a factor when it comes to enabling commerce because you know that's something that's very much you know a core part of BlueSnap and you know whether you're in the US versus Canada versus Europe and obviously Asia being an entirely different beast of its own you know how, how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I see it being very complicated and confusing. Um, I, uh, most of the regulations that I'm seeing makes a lot of sense. They're there to solve a problem like privacy or fraud. So you can't argue with the principle of what they're trying to do, but the regional deployment of these things is making it extremely difficult for businesses. And I would say the big problem is people don't understand it. And quite frankly, very few management teams, again, businesses that get up in the morning and say, hey, let's go read the GDPR rules. Let's go read the PSPP rules. It's just not something you do uh, <laughs> every day, which is why there's a, there's a, there's a big need for compliance uh, folks right now. So I would say the big problem is no one, people just don't understand them. Um, it's don't understand what to do. I mean, if you talk to an American company and you say, here's all the compliance that they do in Europe, their eyes pull over and say, why are you there? I'm like, that's the law. I mean... <laughs> That's the big, big, big issue. Um, and then, you know, implementing these things when you've got these trillions of dollars of payments lying around is so hard. Look how long it took for the America to get chip and pin, and it's still not there everywhere. I mean, 10 million devices had to be changed. That's a lot. It's just going to take five to seven years, right? And people sort of expected it. But I think you're going to see more regulation. I think you're going to see more confusion, and I think you're going to see one of these little gaps of opportunity to pick up. Where, how do I help, you know, people with this uh, th these problems over the next five to seven years? Um, I think it's a it's a big innovation opportunity. Since you know, let's face it, compliance doesn't sound like the sexiest space, but if you get it wrong, you don't want to be on the cover of any magazine, uh, right? Yeah. When we think about the competition and the overall market in the space, do you anticipate kind of a winner-takes-all scenario or, or more of a fragmented 
situation where you have a number of providers kind of solving for different situations. I feel like, you know, a company like Stripe probably making a lot of noise, probably like, you know, seemingly a platform that could take on a, a lot of these problems. And then there's obviously a number of other organizations that kind of really specialize on, on one specific use case or scenario. Yeah, I, I really don't see a winner takes all. I mean, there might be niches where people are strong in like, you know, restaurant space or in, you know, a startup space. Right. I don't see that at all. I think that the needs of the all these verticals and all these different markets is far too vast for anybody at winner take all. And if you want to even say in payments, winner take all, you, you could say, well, Amazon's sort of moving down that path, but still, they're still tiny in the scheme of the world and payments. And so is Alibaba over in China, right? <clears throat> and those are the, probably the two biggest ones. And then you can say China Union Card is, I think, a little bigger than Visa on an issuing basis. And then Visa has got a pretty big foothold, but these guys took 50 years to get to that spot. So I, I don't think there's any way there's going to be winner take all. Um, I think the, the business is really going to step back and say, what are my use cases? What do I need? And who best uses it? And a lot of times it's a payments company that you haven't heard of that's solving that problem um, because it gets confusing out there. Um, I think if you Google payment gateway, you can get 500 different companies. So how the heck do you pick? So, so it's going to be fragmented for a while and there will eventually be another group of roll-ups maybe over the next five years. But it, there's just a, just too much going on right now for one business to be able to handle everything going on globally, all markets, all size businesses, that's my opinion. Yeah. Fair enough. Switching gears a bit, want to talk a bit more about your leadership style and, and you know, just curious to dig more into that. You know, first question, and, and we ask this for all of our guests is, you know, what skill or mindset of yours do you find the most difficult to transfer to even the most talented members of your team? And, you know, feel free to brag if, if that helps as well. I, I would say it's, it's probably my sarcasm. That's the hardest thing to <laughs> work on. Um, <laughs> and especially since probably half the team is rolling their eyes as I'm trying to make a point. You know, managing and working with people is hard. Everything, we're all, it's just one of the most difficult things you can do. I'm fortunate. I really got a great team of people. Some of these people are crazy. They've worked with me for over 20 years. Um, but I think we all understand each other really well and we understand how to communicate well with each other because um, that is where it breaks down, right? If everyone's intentions are good, you have to assume everyone's trying to grow the company, everyone's trying to do the job. No one comes in the morning and says, I'm not going to grow the company and do a bad job. So if there's a conflict or there's a change you're trying to make, my view is it breaks down in communication. Now, the communication mostly breaks down between departments. And that's what you're trying to solve for all the time. And so, um, you know, we've actually instituted, a, we have had a, like a behavioral consultant that's kind of worked on the staff for a long time as a consultant and try to just point out that the, the person running technology versus the person running sales or the person running legal or finance all think and look at problems differently. And you got to look at it at a 360 before you make a big change and make sure that that change isn't disruptive um, in a bad way to one of these departments, or if it is, it's then we're giving them the resources to, to get the job done. But I, I feel that uh, that's what I worry about the most is are we communicating truly? Are we communicating truly? And I think sometimes it's very hard to get everyone to look at it that way, which is why some of the meetings we have, you know, may, you know, have some more friction than people want. 
but you're trying to get that out early uh, rather than wait for some problem to be uh, show up in itself later later in life. So elsewhere in the company is what I mean. So I, th I think that's probably the hardest thing to deal with and the hardest thing to sort of pass on a unilaterally across a team. Right. And, and, you know, you mentioned the behavioral consultant and, and you're managing cross-department relations, if you will. Um, how does that work during you know a time like COVID when presumably most of the team is working remotely? How how has the company adopted to that? So so we went really well. I mean we went we went remote. You know we're, we're a tech company, so next day everyone's up and operating. It was like nothing happened. It was great. Everyone you know knows each other. Um, we were also fortunate that in Massachusetts we were deemed essential, so we were able to come to the office. A lot of people came to the office, so we kind of got right back on. Them right back here as people felt safe. We're doing, we got the all the Zooms and Teams and Blue Jeans all set up and we're banging through those calls and um, we're trying to be sensitive that we're not on these things too long and we take breaks. You know, quite frankly, we haven't missed a beat. It's been, and in, in, in some areas, I think have been more productive, some areas been a little bit harder. And I'm sure it's the same for all companies. A lot of communication early, now it's kind of old hat. Um, I think the hardest thing is probably boarding new clients, I mean, new new employees, um, right. you know, that they, they don't have as much of the personal connection to people, um, especially when you're global with people in Israel and Canada and England and Ireland, trying to get everyone sort of embedded in what's going on. So you just got to spend that extra time on the phone trying to connect with people and get a little personal, um, you know, before or after a meeting as best you can, just kind of like you were in the office. But I, I think long term, it's unsustainable. Understandable. I don't think we can work for three years like this. Um, I think right. eventually you break down some fabric of the company. We're not sure. I'm not sure what it is. We've never been through that, but something something gives somewhere along the line. If if we keep this up for three years, well, let's hope that doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, for sure. You also mentioned how you worked with a lot of your management team for, for you know almost 20 years, which is obviously an incredibly long time. I, I think. One thing that comes to my mind or one thing I'm curious about is, you know, absent of names, you know, when you build a team, what are some of the skills that you look for? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to be really solid in whatever your competency is, whether it's technology or finance. The second thing is uh, problem solving. I think that's critical because anytime you're growing a company or pivoting in it, it you're, you're just going to have a basket of problems. You got to put them in the right order and get through them. And then the last is working with people. You gotta be able to work with teams um, today because you could be the best technology person in the world, but if, if, if you can't respect or you, you, you can't connect with finance or you don't know how to work with sales, it's, it's, that's not long-term sustainable. So those are the three simple things we look for. Got it. Great to know. And, and you know, that, that basically wraps up all my questions. Very. Very thankful for all the insights, all the thoughts that you gave, not just on the company, but the industry overall and, and you know, how you build companies and build teams. I think that those were all incredible insights and, and definitely a lot to learn from, from, from your experience. So very, very grateful to have you on the podcast and, and, you know, look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Good luck on the Canada. Awesome. You've been listening to the Vertical Software Podcast. Make sure to rate and subscribe our show to stay up to date on future episodes of the Vertical Software Podcast. Thanks again and talk to you next week.